When crisis strikes, organisations face a battle of survival under intense scrutiny. How they are judged depends on the performance of individuals and teams huddled in war rooms, working to provide a coherent response under maximum pressure. In Crisis Talks, I aim to capture the insights of people who have responded to a crisis and their stories of leadership, courage and resilience in the face of extreme adversity. Their lessons will help us all be better prepared to preempt and respond proactively and with confidence. My name is Grant Chisnell and this is Crisis Talks. Imagine being stuck in a foreign country and not able to evacuate because flights have been cancelled. Who would you normally go to? You'd normally probably call your high commission or your consulate in country, the embassy support in each of these countries in order to facilitate evacuations and get yourself back home. But when the pandemic struck in India, a lot of these flights were unavailable to expats. What came out of necessity was an evacuation coordinated by a man by the name of Simon Quinn, who's joining us today on Crisis Talks. Now, Simon is a Sanskrit student who was living over in India for the last few years. He's teaching English over there. So he's probably the last sort of guy that you'd normally turn to for an international repatriation or evacuation mission. But we've got him here today because as we sort of say in crisis, the, that uh, necessity is the mother of invention. And Simon certainly uh, epitomizes that. So Simon, Thank you for joining us today on Crisis Talks. We're really looking forward to hearing your story and how this all came about. Good day, Grant. It's nice to be here. Now, mate, tell me, what was the story? How did this all sort of come about? What were you sort of doing at the time uh, before this sort of pandemic struck and, and how was the effects on the ground over there? Basically, Prime Minister Modi, the Minister of India, came on TV one evening and announced that there would be an international flight ban that would be instituted on account of COVID. And so basically people had about, a, you know, thousands of foreigners were, were, were scrambling to try and get out of the country before this flight ban took effect. So they had about a week. So if you imagine that, you know, there's hundreds of thousands of foreigners in India, very limited flights, and most of those flights had already been booked out. It was basically impossible for, you know, tens of thousands of foreigners to get out of the country in, in that time. And not only that, you know, once they once India announced that flight ban, a lot of airlines just cancelled their flights anyway. So there were yeah thousands of people that were were stuck in India. And what sort of time frame was that for? Uh, was that sort of early in the year, or was that sort of um, around March sort of time frame? Yeah, in March. So the the, the flight ban was announced in March. So and still, then uh, still relatively early in the piece. I mean, we saw the imagery over here of you know police on the streets with canes with people being duck walked down the streets and those sort of things as a hard lockdown sort of came into place in India. Is that around yeah. that same sort of time when this happened? Yeah. So the flight ban was instituted about a week before the lockdown. And then when the lockdown was announced, the flight ban was extended. Right. So uh, around the same time, Prime Minister, about four days before uh, that flight ban, uh, Prime Minister Morrison had issued advice for everyone to return home. That was the smart travel and the DFAT advice is that people should try and make their way back to Australia if possible. Notwithstanding that advice, it was just impossible for everyone to get out. Even if every Australian had wanted to get out, there just wouldn't have been enough tickets to do so. 
So basically, regardless of what the advice was or regardless of what happened with the lockdown, it would have been impossible for everyone to get out before the flight ban took effect. So when that um, smart traveler advisory escalated, you know, you've been living over in country for a while and you'd seen these uh, hard lockdown notifications coming through. What was going through your mind? At that stage, COVID wasn't, I mean, in India now, the circumstances around COVID are extremely dire. At that stage in India, India was faring quite well in comparison to the other parts of the world like Europe and America. So people weren't really panicking in India at that stage because of COVID. But the Indian government wanted to try and contain it as much as possible. And I think that's why they instituted that flight ban to try and stop those international arrivals bringing COVID into the country. I mean, COVID was already there, obviously, but they just wanted to try and contain it as much as possible. But I don't think there was that sense of uh, panic that people have now because of COVID. And so we're talking about March. Uh, I presume at that stage, you're reaching out to the High Commission in India What's the sort of process that you had to go through with registering with them or otherwise? Yeah, so basically what happened was, I'll just give you a bit of background. So I thought it would be a good idea when that lockdown was announced to try and uh, get in contact with some other Australians just to exchange information on flight options about, you know, would it be possible to get out? What flight are you taking and stuff like that? Just as kind of support group or an information exchange group. So initially it started as a WhatsApp group and then that grew more and more and then uh, we made a Facebook group you know that had about a thousand members within a week Wow! and initially it was just exchanging information on available flights and then uh, you know if anyone had a crisis how we might be able to use our local contacts to assist them. Mm-hmm. Uh, after about two weeks of that group I got in contact with Barry O'Farrell who was the High Commissioner designate. So he Barry had only been in country about a month as the new High Commissioner. So this wow. was like a real storm for him to to enter. Yeah. So I got in contact with Barry and I kind of asked him, you know, are you guys looking at organising any repatriation flights for Australians? And he said yes. They were in negotiations with a couple of airlines, but you know this this would this would take a while. Mm. So a couple of weeks passed and basically I was kind of in trying to generate media exposure at that time and getting people to email the High Commission to tell them about their circumstances, just to try and push things a little bit. And then Rod Hilton, who's the Deputy High Commissioner, who kind of runs the day-to-day operations of the, of the High Commission, he got in contact with me and I talked with him at length about what the options they were that they were exploring. Yeah. Uh, and it seemed from what he told me that basically there were options on the table, but these negotiations might take a while. And even if these negotiations came through, the cost of tickets would be prohibitive for a lot of people. So unfortunately, Australia in comparison to other countries is quite difficult to get people back to just because of you know geographical reasons and, and existing flight routes. So I think it, to be fair, it was a lot harder for the Australian government or the High Commission to arrange flights than it was for, say, Germany or the UK, where it would just be a, quite an easy direct flight there. So they did have those challenges. But, you know, after after a few weeks, it seemed to me that things were going nowhere, and that's when we started looking into flights ourselves. And so that's after a few weeks in the hard lockdown period. It's not before that, is what you're saying? Yeah, after a few a few weeks of the, of the lockdown. Uh, so basically, it, it, I mean, like, you know, I would say 90% of the 
the Australians, uh, citizens and permanent residents who were in India at the time were of Indian heritage. Yep. So a lot of them had kind of knew the country, they knew the language, they had family in the country. So they had those support networks in place mm-hmm. that they could draw on. But I'd say 10% of people were of non-Indian heritage and they were true on business or, te- or employment or whatever. Yep. And for them, it was quite harrowing. So a lot of them were locked in hotel rooms. They couldn't access the medication they needed. They didn't, you know, the rules and things were changing uh, day by day. And uh, there was quite a lot of uh, hostility towards foreigners as well. So people were quite afraid and that was fair. So I thought, you know, this, this really is, this can't go on. And the High Commission is not really able to make much progress. So then we thought about uh, doing something ourselves. So the High Commission at that stage, were they understaffed? What was the issues for them in, in being able to plan or execute a, a, repa- a repatriation mission? I think there were several issues. I think, I mean, they were doing their best with the resources that they had. So I think a lot of, they were missing a lot of their local staff. Because of the lockdown, a lot of the local staff were stuck wherever they were and they couldn't get back to work. Yeah, That was the first issue. I think a lot of the uh, diplomatic staff had, had been uh, evacuated by that time as well. Okay. So they were understaffed all around. And then the second issue was that, you know, a lot of these decisions about what happens are made in Canberra, not in, in New Delhi. So, you know, the the High Commission in in New Delhi would be issuing reports to Canberra and then Canberra would probably be determining what course of action is appropriate. So, you know, for whatever reason, the people in Canberra think it was necessary to make extraordinary measures to uh, repatriate people. So did they have a, a form of registering or is this what you picked up with the Facebook group and the WhatsApp groups that you established? So they did have a, a form of registering initially, but it was very primitive. Basically, people would just copy this table and then paste it into an email and send it to them. Yes. So it would have taken them a long time to process that data and put it into a spreadsheet or whatever they did. Uh, we also started registering people ourselves on a Google spreadsheet. I mean, it wasn't ideal from a privacy point of view because it was public, but you know, we just got basic details on people like name, location, and how many people were in their party, just so we could get an idea of ourselves of how many people were there. So, you know, we had thousands within a couple of weeks. So when you say uh, we, who, who's, who's we? This is you really at the start, isn't it? Yeah, so it was me at the start. And then, you know, I kind of recognised some people who, who I could draw on for help. And I just got in contact with them and I asked them, you know, would you be able to, would you be willing to, to take this thing on? Because it was just getting a little bit too much for me to do on my own. Yeah. Just for the time. So, you know, I kind of recognized these other people and then uh, got in contact with them and asked them just uh, if they could do particular tasks. And um, and so really you formed a, a little mini crisis team really to start to deal with the situation. Tell us what was going on. I mean, you, I mean, you've taken this on board, which is fascinating in its own right that you've taken that responsibility for this. What drove you to do that? I mean, I didn't really have that intention to begin with, I mean, when I created that Facebook group, it was really just thought it was a good idea for Australians to have somewhere to go just to keep in contact with each other. I think, you know, keeping in contact with people from your own background and country is, uh, is can be really helpful in a stressful situation because they kind of, in similar circumstances, I suppose. Yeah. And then I suppose, you know, people would just started posting, asking for advice, you know, like, and then I started posting about my interactions with the High Commission. So really, I mean, when I first started it, there was no intention for me to try and organize any flights myself. It was really just this kind of support group. 
And then, you know, upon realizing that things were going nowhere in, in respect to the, the negotiations the High Commission was doing, and that people were in really, some people were in really serious situations, I thought, you know, it's time uh, that we try and do something ourselves. But yeah, I mean, it, it was difficult because there were, you know, there were so many people messaging me saying, you know, like, I'm in this hotel, I don't know what to do. Mm -hmm. can't get in contact with the High Commission. I can't get my medication. I can't get the food for my kid, that kind of thing. And you've mentioned a few times that you're sort of advocating on behalf of everyone and also generating some, some news coverage or something for that was something you mentioned before. How was that being received by the High Commission at the time? Because I imagine you would have been a bit of a thorn in their side. I mean, that's what you would think, but I don't think so. Because I think the people at the High Commission were, they really wanted to help as much as they could. And I think in some respects, their hands were tied as to what they could do. Because, you know, these decisions are made at a, at a higher level in Canberra. But they, they told me that we were getting a lot of attention in Canberra at the highest levels because of the media exposure and because of the reports they had been submitting. So basically what happened was they said, you know, we will abandon our negotiations and we will back your plan. Okay. That's essentially what happened. Mm -hmm. So basically they said, we'll direct hundred percent of our resources to supporting your repatriation plan. Yeah. And that was what was necessary because we couldn't have pulled it off unless we had their backing because of the permits and so on that were required, both on the Indian side and the Australian side, we needed that diplomatic representation and we needed those contacts in Canberra to get that done. So it's not like we went out of completely alone. It was basically, we were the face of it and we were kind of doing it, I suppose, but they were in the background doing what was necessary from their side. So they weren't at all obstructive in any way. Oh, that's good to hear. Uh, they were very supportive, yeah. Well, I think it's, you know, when you've pushed out in that vanguard position, I mean, you're really going to drag the, the bureaucracy along behind you. So I suppose it's concerning the fact that that was required to start with. And that's, and that's where I think, you know, a lot of people assume, you know, if I'm stuck in a foreign country, um, I'm automatically going to get this diplomatic support from my government. But in, in many cases, it does rely on a lot of local innovation and, um, and people like yourselves to really pull these things together. With that in mind then, I mean, what was the plan? So I got in contact with a guy called uh, Royce Crown. Mm -hmm. And uh, Royce runs a software company that kind of tracks planes around the world so that people can easily arrange charter flights. So it's basically a software company as far as I understand. And how did uh, you find Royce? So Royce had an, an ad on his website actually advertising that he could organize repatriation flights. Okay, yeah. So, yeah, I saw that and I got in contact with him. Mm -hmm. Royce doesn't do any... Royce uh, kind of works with another guy called Brendan Hempel. Mm -hmm. Brendan is an ex-pilot and he runs various companies around the world. So I got in contact with Brendan and Brendan at the time was doing flights between China and Australia to take uh, medical supplies there. Yep. So he wasn't transferring any people at the time, but I got in contact with him and asked him, you know, would it be feasible for you to do the same thing with people? And he said, yes. And he had seen some of the media exposure that we had generated. And so he was uh, very interested in assisting, you know, from a personal perspective as well. And so, so, you, so, yeah, so you, you sort of found these guys and you started to formulate this plan or, or what sort of were the elements you brought together? 
Yeah. So, you know, Brendan had access to these lanes. Yep. The brain kind of acted as a liaison between Lion Air and, and me and the High Commission, I suppose. And, uh, yeah, so we started to formulate this plan. So it was basically me, Brendan, and the High Commission working together. And I was kind of a liaison between uh, Brendan and the High Commission. And uh, we put together this plan about, you know, how what we would need to do in terms of permits and getting people to the airport and then what we would need to do in regards to quarantine in Australia, all those kind of things we had to think about. And then we put this plan together and we had to create a booking system and all those lots of different things we had to put together, you know, very short notice. So it was a lot of luck actually really that it, that it came off. A lot of initiative too, mate. I think you got to take some credit here because yeah, there's a lot of different considerations that go into just that movement. I mean, I'm presuming here that you've got multiple flights are going to be required also internally in country to move people into central areas where you can then coordinate them, you know, well, register them, et cetera, et cetera, before movement here. Well, that would have been ideal, but there was a complete domestic flight ban. There were no domestic flights operating. So on the first flight, the lockdown was really hard. So like in India, it's a kind of, you have a lot of states and each state was kind of going it alone in terms of how they were managing that lockdown. Mm-hmm. So we had people coming from all over the north of India to get to Delhi for the first flight. So they had to, some of the people had to travel through two or three states and each of these states had a million checkpoints. So getting the plane there was really the easy thing. The, the hardest thing was getting all the people to the plane. Yeah. And for that, I got in contact with some influential Indian Australians who knew a lot of people in India. And they were calling up like chief ministers and other different people in the Indian central government and state governments to try and get these people past these checkpoints. Because the High Commission was quite limited in what influence it had there, especially in, in regards to state governments. I mean, they were coordinate with the, the, the central government, with the state government, so it was a lot more difficult. So we had to use kind of local networks to push these people through these checkpoints. So that was really the most difficult and challenging thing, is getting people to the plane, not getting the plane to the country. So massive logistics operations kicking off. I mean, I'm presuming then, too, that you're getting a lot of people that are still messaging you throughout. I mean, how are you managing that, that load of inquiries and issues for all these people being brought together as part of this mission? So I just tried to keep like the Facebook page. I wasn't allowing other people to post on there because it would have just been chaotic. I just tried to put out some kind of clear messages for myself about what was happening yeah. and, and just explain to people that I, it wasn't possible for me to uh, respond to every single inquiry that I was getting, like every private message. So I, I essentially just said, I can't look, I'm at the stage now where I can't respond to private messages. You can try private messaging these other people or if it's a, if you're in an emergency, then you need to uh, contact the High Commission directly. I can't, I can't, I'm not in a position to help with that. So I just really had to decide, you know, th- this doing the flights was the most important thing and, and I couldn't really help with uh, individual individual issues so much. There's a massive risk when you're taking on board these flights and the booking and leasing of these aircraft. There's a massive financial risk with them. I mean, how was that considered and managed? Did the government step in at that point in time or was that sort of picked up by yourself or others in the process? So I wasn't involved financially with it at all. Basically, Royce Crown and Brendan Hempel, they're the ones who assumed that financial risk and and kudos to them for doing so. 
So yeah. Brendan really had to Brendan had to put up I think a, 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 I think a million and a half dollars for the first flight because Lion Air couldn't receive the money in time, so he had to put up his own money. So they were taking a massive risk in doing this, and they knew that even if if it came off, they were not expecting much of a return. They were essentially just doing it to cover their costs, and I and, and I believe that Royce actually has lost money on actually lost money on the operation. Wow. So they they were really doing it because they saw these fellow Australians in need, not because they were wanting to make a profit at all. So yeah, they, I mean, I personally didn't assume any financial risk. I don't know about what other risks that I was uh, taking. I mean, I didn't really have time to think about the legal stuff mm. myself, but you know, they were, they were assuming the bulk of that. Wow, that's pretty fascinating to hear. And it's amazing to hear they've come to that rescue really, isn't it? I mean, yeah. but, but it's a credit to yourself. I mean, you've, you've sort of created this cause and this movement that sort of inspired people like those those guys to invest, you know, and support it. So kudos to you as well here, because I mean, without you, arguably, would any of this have happened? I, I mean, I guess that something would have had to happen eventually. I mean, the High Commission would have had to have stepped in eventually. I think it would have just taken, you know, maybe another month from when after we started. And that, that was another month that people were, a lot of people were really uh, suffering. So I think it would have happened eventually. It just might have taken a lot longer, but I couldn't say exactly how long. How many people did you move? How many flights were coordinated? What was the sort of total figures? Can you give everyone an understanding of the magnitude of this, please, Simon? So there were, there were five flights in total, uh, three from Delhi, one from Mumbai and one from Chennai. And in total, I think about just over 2,000 people were repatriated on those flights. Wow. So now... Fortunately, back then, so now, as you know, they've, they've introduced these flight caps. So there's like 50 people per f- maximum per flight into a lot of cities. Yeah. But now, um, at, at that time, uh, it was we were allowed to put like 440 people on a flight. So we could really pack those flights full to get as many people back as possible, which was great. Now it's a lot slower. If people are doing flights, it's like, you know, they can have 50 people on a flight. So it's, it's going to take forever. Yeah, I think they're relying on the belly space and the cargo space to yeah. um, offset some of that. But yeah, there's still obviously a cost that's being borne, I think, by the government in, in most cases as well, which is which is good to see because we obviously have people that have been stuck or, or been um, in similar positions, but equally we want to get them home or you need to get them back to the right level of care and support. What was what was probably the biggest lesson for you? I mean, you've lived as an expat overseas for a number of years. What was the biggest eye-opener for you in this whole instance? I think there were a couple of things. The biggest thing that was interesting for me is that how ill-prepared our government was for this kind of scenario. So, you know, experts have been warning for, for a long, long time that something like this is inevitable, that a global pandemic of this scale and this severity is going to happen. So I would have assumed that people in government would be preparing for this contingency, but it seemed like they weren't. So that was an, a real eye-opener for me, how ill-prepared the government was, and that they didn't really have much about how to get all these Australians home. The second eye-opener was that as ordinary citizens, don't underestimate what you're capable of. So, you know, I think people assume that it always has to be government that, that does these kind of things, but I think ordinary citizens should remember that, you know, 
you're capable of doing whatever government does as well if you push hard enough and you know draw on the resources that you have yeah and that's probably the fascinating story for me you know i had a business where we were running evacuations for people globally quite intense operation it requires a lot of skill and it requires people with medical skills etc there and logistics skills and expertise i think it's fantastic seeing what you've done here and and i understand probably more than others and probably for everyone's benefit you know this this is this particular operation has so many different working parts to it for for you to work your way through that without any sort of real planning or training experience in in this area is a real credit so i think it's a it's a really uh it's a really amazing story, Simon, which I'm really wrapped that you're able to share with us today. What, what, what was probably, you know, you, you've moved over 2,000 people as part of this whole response. Surely there's been, you know, you've been flooded with gratitude for this whole event. Was, has everyone been, you know, to the person, you know, 100% happy with this and, and, and wrapped that you've been able to get them home? Yeah, I've been... Uh... I had a few marriage proposals actually, <laughs> <laughs> or a few, uh, a few dowry. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, no, but people were on the whole really grateful. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, I, I think you know, obviously, there's always pe- some people who who were complaining about the fact that it wasn't it. <laughs> we had a few people complaining about the fact that it wasn't it, and an entertainment system online, things oh like that. Goodness. You know, just stupid. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So you always get. Well, what was the? Ex- I mean, come on. What was the expectation? Don't know. Right. But yeah, some people were not happy with the with the Lion Air service. The so things like that. I mean, but you know, the, just those people were few and far between. Most people were just grateful to get home. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, it wasn't the most comfortable flight. I think there was like fifty infants on the first flight. Wow. So yeah. uh, I, I have a good. Uh, there's a. You know, I heard from some people it was pretty loud and pretty uncomfortable, but, uh, you know, uh, people were just glad to get home mostly. Yeah, unfortunately, we see the best and the worst of humanity in some of these circumstances, mate. But let's focus on the positives there that you've obviously had a few proposals and a few other sort of support coming your way. And I think there should be a lot more gratitude for, for what you've done. What what's some of the biggest uh, you know if if you if you go back a few months and you could advise the government again about what they should do or or what anyone else that's living or working overseas should think about before or whilst they're operating overseas, what would the biggest piece of advice you'd give to them? I mean, it's hard because I don't I don't know exactly what was happening uh, uh, in Canberra around these decisions, but. Uh, you know, there's still 7,000 or so Australians stuck in India or more. We don't exactly know. And uh, they have very little prospect of getting out anytime soon because of these uh, flight caps that have been introduced. Yeah. Uh, so that's really unfortunate. And there's really no reason why these people couldn't have gotten home if government had helped uh, more over the last few months. I mean, the effort in comparison to comparable countries around the world has been pretty poor in, in my estimation. Uh, like if you look at the efforts of the, the US, the UK, Germany, other countries, Australia's effort has been, has been, has a lot, lot to be desired there. Um, yeah, that's so, disappointing. I mean, some, some people might say that, or might, uh, might counter that by saying, well, you know, the, 
you know, the, the, the people have made choices to stay there throughout this and now are obviously realising the extent, the extent of the impact. I mean, what would you say to people that, that, that put forward that argument that some people have chosen to stay there despite the advice at different points in time? That narrative might be true in, in, in the case of people in Europe or America. There have been commercial options to get home. But in the case of India, that's just, not, that's just false. Because yeah. even if uh, all of the people in India, all of the Australians in India wanted to get out, it would have been impossible to do so because there just haven't been the, that number of tickets available. So the narrative that people that, that has been conveyed by Morris and, and then echoed by the state premiers that people have had opportunity to return is just not correct. And that's what's really unfortunate because uh, it's kind of fueled this public hostility toward these, these Australians overseas. Uh, and some of that might be justified in cases where people have had an opportunity re to return and, and have ignored that advice, notwithstanding their other commitments like kids at school or whatever. But in the case of India and in other countries, there just hasn't been that opportunity. So basically people have been stuck there through no fault of their own. Uh, if, if everyone wanted to get out, it would have been impossible. So that's the message that I'm trying to get across now in the media uh, to try and uh, push for something for these people that are still there because you know, people, they've kind of been abandoned uh, with this message that, you know, you could have returned home if you wanted to, but it's just not true, at least in the case of India. Yeah, I think it's a, it's a real misperception out there and it's really uh, being uh, exacerbated by a lot of the reporting um, as you said, negatively around people and choice or otherwise. And I think you've yeah. really nailed the, the, the true narrative that we're seeing in many of these circumstances that people are simply stuck. And without the right level of support from here or from the government um, to, to enable these things, it's just beggar's belief, you know, and, and to, to sort of add a, a bit more to that, or a bit more context to that, governments have known and have planned for these circumstances and have in some cases had to respond and evacuate expatriates from these countries over time. So this is nothing new. Granted, the volume at one point in time is, an, is a real impact. However, the, the, the challenge of evacuating people from a, a third country or another country is, is something that is well known, well rehearsed and, and obviously um, well, uh, well understood as a risk. So to, to be you know, underprepared for that is a real indictment, as you said, on the on some of the arrangements we've got in place. So our foreign uh, our foreign affairs um, bureau, the teams there in DFAT, there's a triple C. There's a there's a crisis coordination center or a crisis uh, command center based out of Canberra, which is that go to agency for coordinating all these evacuations. So. It's going to be interesting to see what the wash up is on this, Simon, on how they've, you know, planned and prepared for future events because it's been a pretty poor response, and you've obviously had to step in to fill a gap. Yeah, what I mean, I didn't, I didn't, to be honest with you, I didn't really see any of that planning reflected in in, in the situation of India. I mean, there was very seemed to me there was very minimal. Uh, I mean, essentially the way I mean they just basically flew six Qantas flights there after we did our flights and that was it uh, from the Australian side. I mean, and that was just a drop in the ocean and I don't see why that took a couple of months to organise. I mean, I, obviously you're, you're dealing with Qantas, which is not really the, I mean, they call it the national carrier, but it's not government owned or anything. So they would have had to negotiate with them. 
But the fact that that took two months to organize was just very difficult to understand. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, and, and that's where I think it's, um, uh, unfortunately, it's a real indictment from, as you said. Um, if, if you could sit down with someone now and really go through, you know, what happened and, and go through the wash up, who would you like to sit down with? Um, I mean, I kind of, I've, I've done that a, a little bit with the, with people at the High Commission, just had a chat about, you know, what happened, but you know, it would be good one day to, you know, I, I, I talk, Rod Hilton, who's the Deputy High Commissioner, you know, I'd like to have to sit down and have a drink with him one day and just go through it all. He's yeah. kind of still dealing with it now. So has, and I'm back, I'll be back in Australia, but you know, next time I go back to India, if he's still there, I'll, I'll go and I'll go and meet him and, and we'll, we'll just have a laugh about it. <laughs> but, uh, you know, now he's, they're, they're still getting, they're still getting pumped because, uh, you know, there's still thousands of Australians there and, and, uh, what they can do, essentially, there hasn't been tight with these caps on international arrivals, unfortunately. Yeah. Uh, and there's no appetite, there's no political will, there's no political appetite in Australia to, to do anything more, unfortunately. So I, I do feel sorry for our diplomats because they're the ones who have to uh, deal with the fallout of the decisions that are made in Canberra. Yeah. Uh, and, and uh, you know, the, 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 the toll is huge on people now. You know, if you think about people that have been stuck in India in various states of lockdown for five months, uh, a lot of them have houses and, you know, the, the financial stress is, is just enormous. Mm. The mental health toll is enormous and all our, our diplomats are kind of expected to deal with that. And I don't think they're really equipped uh, because of their, their staffing shortfall and, and just in general to deal with that number of people who are in, in that much distress, unfortunately. Yeah, and their families have also been brought home themselves, haven't they? So they're they're actually over there, remote and alone themselves. So, look at yeah, I, I couldn't I, I couldn't agree more. I think the the challenges are really there on those front lines, um, you know. But it really, is the decisions behind them um, that that um, yeah has such a profound impact on everyone in the system. And and I think this is a challenge for the system, not necessarily a challenge on the individuals. But, you know, individuals like you stepped in, Simon, and would you do it again, knowing all that you know now and all the probably the late hour, uh, late, uh, late nights and um, sleepless days that you went through? What would be, uh, would you do it all again? Yeah, absolutely. I'd do it again. Uh, I probably, I'd, obviously, I made a lot of mistakes and there's things that I could have done differently. But, yeah, absolutely, I'd do it again. I'd just probably do it a little bit smarter this time. Um, but, yeah, I mean... You know, it was a, a real honour and privilege to to be able to help that many people in that in that amount of time. So yeah, definitely would again. And what what I suppose what drove you in the end to do this? I just didn't feel there was much of a choice, really. I mean, I just kind of fell into it, and then you know, it just got bigger and bigger, and 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 I just felt that was my responsibility. Uh, was there a moment though where you, was there a moment though where you sort of consciously said, okay, right, I, you know, it might have started with a bit of a connection with a group, it might have been started with a bit of communication, just sort of said here and there, but was there a sort of conscious line where you went, okay, now I need to really step into this or lean into this? I think I realised that uh, if I didn't do it, it probably wasn't going to happen. So. Uh, yeah, I mean, if it, if it happened, it probably would have just taken a lot longer. So I felt, you know, like if, if I want things to happen, I just need to just take charge of it and get it done. 
so essentially I just, I kind of, I didn't really, there was never a point where I made a conscious decision that I thought, you know, uh, uh, I'm going to be doing these flights. It kind of just evolved from one thing after a day. And, but there was a time when I thought, oh my God, what am I doing? This is insanity. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this is like, this is like complete insanity. Like this yeah. is a random dude from Australia, like organizing flights. Like this is, what this is, this insane. And, uh, you know, what kind of, what am I doing? I'm just completely unqualified to be doing this. I've got no idea what I'm doing. I don't understand the technical stuff. I've done this before. This is just, this is just stupid. This is just insane. But <laughs> I just kind of tried to put those thoughts to one side and, and just focus on, on the task at hand, um, which was getting people back and, and, uh, just try and, uh, work through my own, uh, anxieties and, uh, lack of confidence around, around it and, and just get it done. Yeah, well, uh, I can tell you now, it's an amazing effort and I understand completely the volume and, and um, the complexity um, and the issues and challenges, the stakeholder engagement consideration. It's a really, yeah, it's a really amazing story in, um, in improvisation, adapting and overcoming all these circumstances, Simon, and, and, and real good demonstration of, of crisis management. Um, and unfortunately, without the plans, it relies on, as you've done and shown, that leadership to really shine through and take the initiative and run with it. So on behalf of all those 2013, I think it was people that you've evacuated, thank you. Um, thank you for joining us on Crisis Talks. It's a fantastic story. And I think you've got yourself a career lined up in either crisis management, mate, or <laughs> as a diplomatic uh, advisor down the track. So thank you, Simon, for joining us today. You're welcome. My pleasure. In my next episode of Crisis Talks, I interview Clint Honeycutt, who was the Emergency Response Coordinator for the BP Gulf of Mexico Deepwater Horizon incident. We'll go through the preparedness measures that BP had taken in the lead up to the event. We'll talk about the immediate response, the use of the incident command system, how the teams coordinated and managed the major incident that affected the whole of the Gulf of Mexico and the long-term impacts that it had on Clint, the business and the wider community. If you've seen the movie Deepwater Horizon, then this will take you behind the scenes into the emergency response and you'll hear some of the real stories of resilience in the face of adversity. 